All right, so we don't have to struggle much today with social distancing, praise God. Um, but just keep safe. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and I wanted to welcome you all again. Those of you that are here, those of you that are up there, those of you that are worshiping with us online, um, you came uh, in a right time. This is a great time for us as a church. I believe that the Lord is doing stuff that we never expected, and he's doing amazing things in the big things in the church and in the little things of the church. And I don't want you to miss how faithful and good and powerful God is. All you have to do is pay attention to what the Lord is doing. And three weeks ago, we started this series called Unplug, Learning to Disconnect in a Connected World. And basically what we are doing is uh, teaching the church and reminding the church of the importance of spiritual rhythms or spiritual disciplines for the sake of your relationship with God and for the sake of your soul. Biblical rhythms, spiritual rhythms, spiritual disciplines are important not just because they're good things to do, but because of the sake of your relationship with God and the sake of your soul. So the first week, uh, Pastor Josh Laxton talked about rest. Last week, Pastor Kyle talked about uh, retreat. And today I'm going to be talking about another R, which is the word return. Rest, retreat, and return. And basically what I'm doing today is I want to show you, uh, using Jesus as an example, and how crucial it is that we learn to rest and retreat and how our lives should look like if we practice rest and retreat. I want to show you how crucial this is for you in your spiritual walk with the Lord. And what I'm doing this morning, I'm going to grab five different texts. Some of, them we've, some of these we have already mentioned. Uh, and we want to see how Jesus practiced this thing and what happened as he's practicing those things or what happened after he had practiced those things. Things. So I need you to do me a favor. I need you to um, look at the person next to you um, and, and just tell the person this. You really need this. Go ahead, go ahead. All right, now you tell the person that just told you that. No, 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 no. You need this. Go ahead, go ahead. Now, just so you know, just so you know, I, I usually could tell from here, you know, who are the couples? And he, I could see when you're not telling your spouse what I just asked you to do. So if you're fighting, just put it to the side, man. This is church. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I got a couple of friends that probably heard that one today. Um, uh, I'm going to give you then five things. And so what we're going to do is I'm, we're going to look at, at the principle, if you will. I'm going to show you the text, and then we do some application. So number one, look at what it says, number one. It says, um, we need rest and retreat to be able to return with spiritual strength. My whole argument for this point is that without retreating and without resting, you won't be able to confront temptation and the tests of life. That without learning to retreat and to rest in the person of Jesus and the person of God, you won't be able to be spiritually strong and to resist temptation and to face the tests of life. So the text that we are about to read comes right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you will. Jesus is about 30 years old. He's just being baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descends on him. 
And a father from a voice from heaven comes, the father is speaking, and he says, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And right immediately after that, we find, uh, we find in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit in was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. A couple of things that I want you to understand here. The word tempted here in the text, and actually in every other part in the New Testament, always has two meanings. It's the same word, but has two different meanings. One is test, and the other one is tempt. So what we see in the text is the Spirit of God leading Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted and tested. But there's a difference between those two. God would test people, and the way he's going to do it right now, he's going to test Jesus. God uh, tests people for the sake of shaping the person or uh, see how the person would respond. God would never tempt anybody because temptation is to make someone sin. But God would test the person to shape the person. So we know that in this event... God the Father is used telling the Spirit to take Jesus to the wilderness to be tested, to be shaped right before he starts ministry. But the same test is used by the devil to tempt Jesus, which is so interesting because Jesus cannot be tempted because he's God and he does not sin, and yet the devil is trying to tempt them. So in everything we do, there's always a testing and a tempting. Testing by God to shape us into the people that we need to be, and tempted by the devil to help or to invite us to sin. In everything we do in life, there's always a temptation and a test. Something that comes from God and something that the devil wants to do. That's the first thing that I want you to pay attention there. The second thing that I want you to see is the word fasting. Now, in all the Bible, in the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, there's never a time in which people fast for the sake of fasting. There's not one verse that says that people fast to lose weight. We do that. Not in the Bible. Fasting in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, always includes meditation and prayer. So fasting goes with meditation. Fasting goes with prayer. Now, what we find here is Jesus in the desert, and the Gospel of Luke says that for 40 days, Jesus was being tested and tempted. For 40 days. And that during those 40 days, the devil was test, uh, uh, tempting Jesus. And for 40 days, therefore, we have to assume that Jesus was fasting, was meditating, and was praying. What we find here, then, is the culmination of those 40 days of Jesus being tested by God, and Jesus being tempted by the devil. Forty days. Forty days Jesus is struggling. Forty days Jesus learning to rest and retreat. Forty years Jesus dealing with this thing. Because he knows that his spiritual strength only comes from retreating and resting in the presence of God. Forty days. Now, it's important to see how the devil uses temptation. And I'm just going to give you three. There's more here, but I'm going to give you three ways in how the devil uses the test of God and to turn them into temptation. So, for example, 
in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, it says um, that the tempter, the devil, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He repeats the same thing in verse 6. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. And if you notice what the devil is doing is uh, he wants to tempt Jesus by making him question his identity. If you truly are the son of God. This is basically when you hear something or someone telling you, if you are the son or the daughter of, of God, why are you going through this? Haven't you ever heard that? That's exactly what the devil is doing. Like if our identity has to do with the stuff that we struggle with. The second thing that the devil uses is not just identity, but he's inviting Jesus to question how much God cares for him. That's what we see in verse 6. When he says, uh, if you are the son of God, you said throw yourself down. And if, you, if you're familiar with the text, you know that later on when he says, listen, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Don't worry. God is going to catch you. He's going to send his angels to keep you. So on one end, he's te test, uh, tempting Jesus to doubt his identity. And on the other end, he's te uh, tempting Jesus to doubt how much God cares for him. He doesn't stop there, though. He uses another one that we are all familiar with. He tries to tempt Jesus by offering power. Look at what it says in verse 8. Again, the devil uh, took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Notice, identity care, and power. He says, if you do what I tell you to do, you will be someone. You will have someone that cares for you, and you will have power. And to all of that, Jesus says, thanks, but not thanks. Now, this is what I find crazy here. This is Jesus, the Son of God. God in human form, someone with no sin, and he knows that the only way he can exercise his spiritual strength is by resting and retreating, by going back to the Father in fasting, in, uh, in fasting meditation, and prayer. Forty days! You know what's ironic about this? That Jesus being God needed it, and we think that we don't. Don't you find that crazy? Don't you think that it's ironic that we, limited, tiny, weak people, have a hard time practicing the one thing that Jesus knew he needed? I want to argue that every single one of us is struggling with identity. Isn't that true? Don't we all try to prove things to people all the time? Don't we all struggle at different times with, okay, do I have to prove who I am? I want to argue that every single one of us doubt how much God cares for us. You know how I know that? Because we worry. Worry is the number one evidence that we, sometimes we stop trusting that God cares for us. I want to argue that every single one of us, at one level or another, struggle with this thing of power. 
You know how I know that? Because we are obsessed with positions and titles and recognition and prestige and people recognizing who you are. Do you think that we're going to survive in this broken world if we don't learn how to rest and retreat? Listen, let's use work as an example, okay? Because if we talk about work, I know that I'm going to hit everyone in this room. I don't think there is any secret to anybody that we are part of the overworked society. Amen? I don't think there is any secret that in our society, people find their identity in their career. Amen? I don't think there is any secret to anybody that part of our problem is that we can work anytime in any place. That's what technology has done, which is kind of a good thing, but it's also a struggle because we never know how to stop. I don't think that it's any secret to anybody that we're part of a society that tells you that you ought to prove yourself, that you ought to prove your wor- how worthy you are by how much you accomplish. You know when that starts? When kids start going to school. Or when you put them in the soccer team. Because that's the only sport that really matters. <laughs> Amen to my brother over there. Or when you put them in something and somehow, since little ones, they need to prove something. That the more you accomplish, the more value you have, the more worthy you are. That's not a secret to anybody. That's part of the reason why even if your kid don't know how to play, in some teams they give you this medal that he does not deserve. Because we are all important. Yeah, but you don't know how to play. Don't you think that we always struggle with that? Now, my wife and I were having this conversation with uh, a friend of ours that lives in New York. She's part of this executive, uh, she's part of the executive team in this large corporation. And she was telling us about uh, this practice that now a lot of large corporations have in which they tell, they tell the employees that they don't, have, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have a limited amount of time for vacation. So they say, hey, listen, you want to take as much as vacation as you want? Go ahead. Go, go ahead. Just get the job done. Right? And you hear that, and everyone is like, oh, I want that. You know what she discovered? And actually, the reason why the company did that, and other companies are doing that, is because they realize that because our society is so obsessed with achievement and trying to prove that people have value and worth by the, by the things they do, they notice that their employees take less vacation. Not more, but less. You know why? Because everyone is obsessed with trying to accomplish something. Because they know that the company sees them as valuable by the things they accomplish. Don't you think that we all have an issue with this? See, a lady from the New York Times, her name Judith Shulevitz, she, a few years ago, she wrote an article called Bring Back the Sabbath. And she's making the same argument that I'm making this morning, that we are a society of workaholism and that there's different reasons why we people and we, we can't rest, right? But she said two things in this article that I really found interesting. Number one, she says, the part of our problem is that we are a society of neurotic drive to achieve. She's saying the same thing that I said before. 
But she also said that we are a society of the inner murmur of self-reproach. You know what she means by that? That deep, deep down inside, we all feel that we need to prove something by the things we achieve. She makes this crazy good argument, and she says that that is the reason why you cannot rest, and I cannot rest, even when I'm resting. How many of you guys have gone to, on vacation, and you come back just as tired or more tired than when you left? You know why that is? Because you walked away, but your heart was still working. Because you took a day off, and your mind was still working. Because all of us somehow still think that our value and our worth is based on what we do and we achieve. So God works six days, and he rests. And we think that we don't have to. How full of pride are we? Don't you think that we need to learn this from Jesus? As long as you continue to live in this world, as long as you continue to be a broken person just like me, as long as the devil continues to be a tempter, he would always try to tempt you with your, with your identity, questioning whether or not God cares for you, and inviting you to gain more and more power. Therefore, you need you need to learn how to retreat, to learn how to rest, to learn how to remember who God is, how much he cares for you, and who you are already in Jesus. Without that, I guarantee you, you will not have the spiritual strength to survive in this life. Is that depressing enough? Yeah, I got more. Look at here, number two. You need to rest and retreat. So you learn how to return and be present. What do I mean by being present? Once again, I don't think there's anybody here that will disagree with me in saying that there's a difference between being physically present and for real present. So for example, my youngest daughter, she's an expert in this. She knows how to read me really well. And she's telling me, uh, sometimes she just shows up and starts telling me 20,000 things. And somewhere in the middle of the conversation, she stops and looks at me and says, Papi, are you even listening? And I'm like, I'm sorry, baby, what? <laughs> That's what I mean by this. There's a difference between being present and being for real present. You know what happens to me? I'm present, but my mind is restless. And this is how sad this is, that you miss the one thing or some of the things that only comes once in life. You know that Jesus didn't have that problem, right? You know that Jesus learned how to be present at all times. Jesus knew how to rest, Jesus knew how to retreat, and Jesus knew how to come back and return and be present. A perfect example of this. We find, it in, we find it in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 31. The disciples are coming from working for the kingdom. 
Jesus sees them, and look at what he says. He said to them, come with me by yourself to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Now, Jesus, that is always noticing what's happening in front of him, he notices that they're physically, emotionally, and most likely spiritually exhausted. And he invites them to rest with him. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what the disciples do with their quiet times. We never know what the disciples do. We know what Jesus does with his quiet time. We know that he's fasting. We know that he's meditating. You know, we know that he's praying, but we don't know what the disciples do. And this is a great place for us to learn the distinction between isolation and solitude. I think the disciples knew how to practice isolation. But I'm sure that Jesus knew how to practice solitude. See, isolation is when you separate yourself from everything else. This is what we say, man, we need vacation. And you separate yourself from everything else. But isolation for the sake of isolation, thinking that because you walk away, you're going to be okay, is isolation with no specific intention in mind. And this is where I say, even if you walk away, you're still restless. Isolation does not guarantee rest, you know? You know why? Because as far as you go, your heart is going with you. And as fast as you run, your mind is running with you. And as much as your life changes, your heart and your mind is still going with you. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus practiced solitude. Is to isolate yourself, yes, with, a, with, an, with, a, with an intention in mind. Is to empty yourself of everything that is happening in the world to focus on who God is, what God does, what God likes, and who I am to him. Solitude is about prayer. Solitude is about meditating in the Word. Solitude is about worship. Solitude is about contemplation. Solitude is about enjoying the presence of God separated from everything else. Now, the reason why I wanted to share that with you is because Jesus is spending this time with the disciples. So they're practicing isolation, and Jesus is practicing solitude. And look at what happens Right after that, Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. You know what's interesting about that passage? That the disciples were there. And they couldn't see what Jesus saw. And they couldn't hear what Jesus heard. You know why? Because Jesus knew how to be present. Jesus knew how to be present. How many of you guys are parents? Did you know that you have your kids for a limited amount of time? Learn how to be present. How many of you guys are married? Did you know that you have your spouse for a limited amount of time? Learn how to be present. How many of you guys have friends? 
That's sad, like three of you guys. <laughs> Just kidding. You know that you have your friends for a limited amount of time. You need to learn how to be present. You know that we all have friends, and we all have coworkers, and we all have certain times that are limited. We got to learn how to be present. And the only way you learn how to be present is when our hearts are not restless anymore. When we retreat and we rest in the person of God, in the presence of God to the point that when we come back, we can be present. I compare this to taking a selfie or taking a picture of something beautiful. Nothing against selfies. I take some of them. Nothing against taking uh, taking pictures. But this is what I've noticed, at least in my life and in my family's life. Sometimes we are so interested in the world seeing how beautiful this thing is that we miss the moment. So we're going to spend 10 minutes trying to upload the stupid picture. I'm, I'm sorry, the, that picture. <laughs> Instead of being there. And there are things that only come once. Whatever you lost, you lost. You gotta learn to be there. And that only happens when you rest and retreat in the person of God. Amen? The person of? Good. I got one more. Number three. We need to rest and retreat to grieve and return in peace. Matthew 14 is a chapter that talks about, at least gives, it gives us part of the story of John the Baptist, and it tells us how John the Baptist died. Now look at what Matthew 14, starting in verse 12, says. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, I already told you that Jesus always looks for solitude with a purpose. What is interesting is that this is the first time in all the years that I read the Bible and studied the Bible that I actually saw this. You know why? Because if, in most Bibles, the way we have it is you got the, you got the event of, of John the Baptist, then there's a subtitle, and then we have this part, and then Jesus feeding the 5,000. You know why I never saw it before? Because somebody decided to make a pause between Jesus grieving and solitude. But that's not what the Bible shows. Contrary to public opinion, Jesus knows that the way to deal with your grief, the way to deal with your pain, is not to get more busy. It's not to try not to think. It's not to try to get distracted. It's not to try to pretend that nothing is happening. And it's not to vent with someone. Jesus knows that the way to deal with grief and pain is by resting and retreating to the one that can give you peace. Actually, let me make an argument. 
Hopefully, if you heard this before, if not, this is free. If you need to vent, vent with God. Nobody else can do anything. You know what they're going to do? Oh, really? And they feed into your stuff. Now, where do I get that from? Did you know that the Bible, especially the Old Testament, invites us to vent with God? This is why we find, especially in the Old Testament, the word reason or to settle. For example, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God says, come now, let us reason, settle the matter. The word reason in the original is to argue. God says, come argue with me. It could be translated as make your case dispute. Let's have a conversation. Let it out. And I know that people have said, well, how can you do that? If you do that, then you're showing that you don't have faith. And I would argue that when you do that, you show that you have faith. Because the one person that can actually do something with your frustration and your pain is him. Vent. That's the only way that you could grieve well. That is the only way that you can deal with your pain. You retreat and look for him and you return in peace. We have been talking about some of this stuff with, with the staff, at least sections of the staff. And uh, last week I had the chance to spend time uh, with children's ministries and student ministries. And we were talking about this topic. And, and I got to share with, with them this season in my life um, that lasted for about a month, more or less in which I was going through different things I might, because I'm a sinful person. I'm not processing things right, and I'm, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, and my heart is restless. And every night I went to sleep for 30 days, every night I went to sleep with this restless, heavy heart to the point that I was sleeping maybe three, four hours every night. So I would get up in the morning and then, you know, crawling, looking for the Lord. And I would spend like an hour and a half with the Lord. And every morning for about a month, wrestling with this thing. And I get up and after an hour and a half of venting with the Lord, praying with the Lord, which I'm so glad that nobody was recording those conversations. You know, the Lord will give me peace. I will continue to do what the Lord was calling me to do. But that lasted for about five to six hours. And then my heart will become restless again, and the cycle will become, will start all over again. So again, at the end of the day, feeling heavy-hearted, go to sleep, couldn't, couldn't sleep well, and every morning for 30 days. And one day after a month, all of that just disappeared. I could tell you that running doesn't work Busy doesn't work. Entertainment doesn't work. Pretending doesn't work. None of that stuff works. What works is to go to him, to wrestle with him, to argue with him, to let him speak to you. And I guarantee you, you will find peace. Even after 40 days or even after a month. Don't you think that we all, not, we all need that? The pressing off? Good. I got another one. We need to rest and retreat so we can return with the mind of God. 
I don't think, uh, I, 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 you heard this from me before at least. Your greatest fights are always up here in your head. And whatever you have in your head affects your heart. And whatever you have in your heart affects your um, affections. And whatever affects your affections affects your emotions. And whatever affects your emotions affects your will. Mind, heart, will. Mind, heart, affections, emotions, and will. And whenever you need to make a decision, everything starts with your head. Interesting that Jesus is going to show us that he's about to make one of the major decisions in his life, which is choosing his disciples. And look at what he does in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Notice, the entire night. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. So there's a couple of things that we can learn just from this passage. Number one, to do the will of God, you need the mind of God. You know, I've heard a lot of believers saying things like, well, I really need to know what the will of God is. So we need some sort of special revelation or we need some sort of sign to know exactly what God wants us to do. I, and I want to argue that, that sometimes that happens, but that is the exception and not the norm. If you want to know what the will of God is, you need to know the mind of God. You need to let your brain be pregnant with who God is and what God says. Because if you know it, you will know what the will of God is. You know, I think you know this, but isn't that how relationships work? Like, for example, if you want to do something for your spouse, if you're married, or if you want to do something for someone you, you care about, if you have friends, if you know that person, you don't need to ask the question many times. You know exactly what they need or they want. So, for example, with my wife, being with her for 27 years, um, I, you know, I, know, I don't know how she survived all those years, but for 27 years. And sometimes I want to buy things, and then sometimes I want to do things, and I know that if I ask my wife, I know that she's going to say no. You know why? Because I know her. I still try, but I know her. I don't need to know what her will is because I know her. Guess what? We struggle knowing what the will of God is when we don't know his mind. And you can only know his mind when you retreat and rest and meditate and pray and think and worship and contemplate until your brain is pregnant with who God is and what God says. And that moves into your heart and that affects your affections and your emotions and eventually that affects your will. You don't know what the will of God is unless you have the mind of God, one. And two, to have the mind of God, you must first learn to rebel against the kingdom of noise. So this is a phrase that C.S. Lewis used. He used it in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. When he described this creation, he describes it, the kingdom of noise. Someone grabbed that image and wrote something for the 21st century. 
which I find so interesting. So I'm going to read a part of that to you. It's, it's a little bit lengthy, so bear with me. This is what it says. Uh, the screw tape letters, if you're not familiar with that, is the devil speaking to his, teaching his nephew how to make our life miserable. Right? It's fiction, but there's a lot of truth in there. Look at, so this is the version of this new, this other uh, writer. It says, you have to help humanity believe that quiet and solitude are boring and a waste of time. That's a popular thought. You have to help them believe that solitude are boring and a waste of time. We must be the demon in the, world, in the whirlwind, invading their private space, cluttering their innermost being with commotion and nonstop entre entertainment. Remember, our greatest ally is constant and pervasive stimulation. And then he says... Make sure that these people feel empty without an iPhone, without, without an iPhone in their hand. Hello? Or a TV in the background. Convince them that they need to watch the Today Show to keep up with the news. Arrange birthday parties at Chuck E. Cheese for kids. And uh, Dave and Buster's for adults. Call their cell phone on their way to work and, and especially during meals. Put TV screens in restaurants, waiting rooms, and airplanes anywhere humans might have time to sit and reflect. Make sure every restaurant serenades them with the latest pop tunes. And turn up the volume so it is impossible to have a quiet dinner and a focused conversation. In my house, we don't have our cell phones in the dining room. That's a sin. Over time, the humans will grow unaware of the high-pitched ringing in their ears, their heart racing, and their constant craving for more volume and more stimulation. Peace and quiet, after all, are the enemy's handiwork. God's work. He waits patiently for them in the stillness, whispering for them to rest and ponder or even pray and meditate. The very thought of it sickens me, the devil says. Keep in mind that silence, solitude, and reflection is the breathing ground of all manners of destructive outcomes. Rest gives them refreshed bodies and clear minds. Clarity, draw, clarity draws them to what we hate the most, truth. In such moments, their vision grows strong and their purpose is rekindled. I warn you, says the devil to his nephew, for hell's sake, do not let this happen. Don't you think that we need that? Don't you think that we need to learn to rest and retrieve so we can return to a world of noise with the word of God and the mind of God here? Is that depressing enough? Good. Last one. We need rest and retreat to be able to return with the full assurance that God is for you. We find one more time Jesus praying. But this time we find him in Luke chapter 22. At Gethsemane. And once again, he's withdrawing to look for God. He withdrew, he knelt down and prayed. And he said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. 
So once again, we find Jesus seeking for spiritual strength. But now it's different than everything else. It's actually different to the first temptation. Now we find Jesus retreating and trying to find rest because he knows that the cross is coming. And he knows that the greatest test is about to come upon him. And he knows that he's supposed to go to the cross and take the wrath of God and pay for the consequences of all the sins of the world, past, present, and future. He knows what he's going to go through. And because he knows what he's going to go through, he is grieving. And he goes to the one that could do something for him. And he says, Father, if it's possible for you, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours. In the midst of his pain and agony and struggle, he prays even more earnestly. And he sweats blood. Because he knows that the one that listens is the one that could do something. And not only he wants his spiritual strength, and not only he wants to grieve right, but he goes to the Father because he wants the mind of God. In his humanity, he struggles like every single one of us is struggle. And he wants his mind to be in alignment with the mind of the Father. And he, want, he wants his will to be in alignment to the will of the Father. And that's why he says, not my will, but your will. And he surrenders to God. And he goes to the cross. And now in a wooden cross, the Son of God finds, seeks for rest once again. And he makes one more prayer. But this time, he got nothing. Father, why have you forsaken me? And he got nothing. How do you explain that Jesus, the Son of God, his entire life did things right? And received the spiritual strength that he needed. And he did what he was supposed to do. And in the greatest test of faithfulness, he was left alone. Why did he have to go? Why did he have to go to that? So you and I know that whenever we go through our grief, that whenever we are tempted, that whenever we are tested, that whenever we need to learn how to be present, that whenever we go through everything we do, we know that there's rest in his presence. Did you know that's one of the reasons why we participate in communion? Because the communion reminds us that Jesus was willing to take the cup of the wrath of God so we could celebrate the cup of peace and rest. So this is what we're going to do right now. This is for you, those of you that are believers already. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is for you. The Bible invites us that before participating, we examine our hearts. This is interesting. In communion, you got to learn how to think like God thinks. You got to have your mind pregnant with who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. You need the mind of God. And Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3 
that we ought to have our hearts and things set our hearts and things above and to set our minds and things above listen up where jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father do you know why we need communion because we need our minds and our hearts pregnant with the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And when you have it, listen up, church. You don't need to worry about your identity. You're already somebody. Jesus already died for you and resurrected for you. You are already chosen by God, adopted by God, the Son of God, redeemed, justified, sanctified, separated for Him. You don't need to prove anything to anybody. You have been approved. You don't need power. You already have power. You are a chosen son and daughter of God. And the Spirit lives in you. You don't, need, you don't need to live the way this world lives. You have been already separated for him. So take a few seconds there. And if there's anything you need to surrender to the Lord, do it. I'm going to ask you to remove the first uh, cover of your cup. Now hold the bread in your hand. And listen to what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. And the night when he, Jesus, was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may participate. Now let's remove the second cup, the second cover of your cup. In the same way, the Bible says that Jesus, after supper, took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. You may participate. Lord, as these uh, elements enter into our, into our system, I pray, Lord, that the reality of who Jesus is, who God is, and what God came to do in Jesus Christ on our behalf also enters into our hearts. Lord, we struggle when we surrender to what the world wants us to do, to what the devil wants us to do, and when even our flesh, and to when our flesh wants us to do. And I pray, Lord, that by the power of the Spirit, 
You help us remember to stop. Because when we stop, we remember who you are, what you have done, and who we are to you. Please make it happen. And give us the rest that we so much need. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the church says,